On Being with Krista Tippett is supported in part by the John Templeton Foundation, funding research and catalyzing conversations that inspire people with awe and wonder. Discover the latest findings on neuroscience, cosmology, and the origins of life at templeton.org. To me, one of the most fascinating developments of our time is that human qualities we have understood in terms of virtue, experiences we've called spiritual, are now being taken seriously by science as intelligence, as elements of human wholeness. And Dacher Keltner and his Greater Good Science Center at Berkeley have been pivotal in this emergence. From the earliest years of his career, Dacher investigated how emotions are coded in the muscles of our faces and how they serve as moral sensory systems, the way a feeling like sadness or fear or a sense of injustice goes on to infuse how we see everything that's happening. He was called on as emojis evolved. He consulted on Pete Docter's groundbreaking movie, Inside Out. And all of this, as Dacre sees it now, led him deeper and deeper into investigating the primary experience of awe in human life. Moments when we have a sense of wonder, an experience of mystery that transcends our understanding. These, it turns out, are as common in human life globally as they are measurably health-giving and immunity-boosting. They bring us together with others again and again. They bring our nervous system and heartbeat and breath into sync, and even into sync with other bodies around us. This science is a wildly accessible, minute-to-minute invitation to practice a common human experience that is literally life-giving and nourishing and actively good for this world of pain and promise that we inhabit. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. I've been in a conversation of friendship and shared curiosity with Dacher Keltner for years, and I'm so happy to bring this conversation to you as he has now translated his studies into a book, Awe, The New Science of Everyday Wonder and How It Can Transform Your Life. So, you know, I want to start at the beginning, which is where I like to start. And, you know, it seems to me... That so much, I mean, at the beginning of you, right? <laughs> it seems to me that so much of your science, uh, one way to talk about it, there are many ways to talk about it, but but one way to talk about it is you are taking the stuff of what has always been moral virtue, and you're taking it into the laboratory. So I start to wonder, just knowing a little bit about you, yeah. um, where... If you would trace, I know that you had a rather kind of experimental, unorthodox, <laughs> oh, spiritual <no. laughs> upbringing. So yeah. I wonder if you look back at that and if you, if you trace the roots of this, this inquiry in you, this curiosity, and the way you've come at it. Oh, yeah. You know, um, there are times in a, a scientific career where we... We believe we're doing, you know, work that has some degree of objectivity where you realize it's all subjective and personal. Um, you know, I was raised by a literature professor who loved romanticism and Virginia Woolf and quoted William Blake and others in the household. And 
And then a visual artist, my dad, who loves, you know, Goya and Francis Bacon and all the horrors of their art and the awe-inspiring horrors. And, and I grew up in a really kind of a radical time of the late 60s oh, yeah. in Laurel Canyon. And so awe was all around me. And I think that being raised by people in the humanities, um, you know, and being a little uh, contrarian, I guess, like kids often are, I always wanted proof. <laughs> right. And I wanted to measure things and I wanted to test things. Hmm. And so it's very fitting that, you know, at this stage in my life, I would turn to science to figure out an awe. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, it, it and, and to find in that science and the limits of the science sort of the what lies beyond it, which is the metaphysical or the spiritual. And so studying awe really brought me into contact with spirituality, too. And then it's so interesting to me that you you really wandered into a new science as yeah. it was emerging, right? Like, yeah. I mean, I've had this conversation with other neuroscientists as well, and it's really easy, I think, for people now to yeah. forget that this particular form of science has just been around for a few decades, and you were yeah. right there at the beginning, and yeah. you walked into this new science of emotions, yeah. which which science had very, very uh, strictly avoided. Yeah. And it was really new for you to be taking things like laughter and gratitude and love and desire and compassion into study. You know, it was astonishing to me. I was in graduate school in the mid to late 80s at Stanford and, and you know, it was the heyday of what's called the cognitive revolution. And the metaphor was that the human mind is like a computer with software and hardware and <laughs> cranking out these algorithms and computations. And that's Consciousness, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, and some of the most famous people in the field uh, just felt like emotions couldn't be studied. It was inappropriate to study them. Um, they were intractable in terms of measurement and conceptualization or how we would even measure them. And I just felt my past at that time, you know, of, of being raised by these wonderfully emotional <laughs> parents, uh, uh. <laughs> you know, who were like, but what about poetry and what about paintings and what about the feelings you have and what would human life be like without crying and laughter? Mm. So it was it was astonishing to just hear the brightest minds say there's there's no place for human emotion in prejudice, in racism, mm. in morality, uh, literally, mm-hmm. you know, carrying on Western European traditions in many ways and. But what a great opportunity to fall into as a young scholar. Yeah. So now you have written this wonderful book. The first lines, I have taught happiness to hundreds of thousands of people (laughs) around the world. It is not obvious why I ended up doing this work. I have been a pretty wound up, anxious person for significant chunks of my life (laughs) and was thrown out of my first meditation class. (laughs) Which is true. So thank you for that. Full disclosure. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I have to say, my friend and I in college went to this meditation class, and they had us chanting, I am a being of purple fire. Yeah, which is a reason to laugh. I give you Yeah, that. and I'm like, I'm not a being of purple fire. <laughs> I'm an adolescent who wants, you know, to meet interesting people. And, and so, yep, we got tossed out of that class. Mm. So. 
But I mean, yeah, and you, um, I've been following your work um, off and on for, for many years, and this really has deepened and deepened and deepened to this this study of awe. Yeah. And you say, you know, now after 20 years, you have the answer to the perennial question, how to live a good life, and the answer is to find awe. And so tell me, is this right? You've done you've done these massive studies, right? Yeah. I don't know, somewhere I've got 2,600 narratives, 20 yeah. languages. Yeah. And were you surprised, I kind of was, to yeah. read that what most commonly led people around the world to feel awe was an experience of other people's courage, kindness, strength, or overcoming? Yeah, you know, the first surprise was it's other people around us, everyday people who bring us awe yeah. moral, and what we call moral beauty. Yeah, of, and I love that language, moral beauty. Yeah, kindness, courage, overcoming obstacles, you know, saving people's lives. Just time and time again, you know, the, the most common source of awe is other people. And, and you wouldn't think that given what we look at on Twitter no. and Instagram, but, but it's a deep, a deep tendency to choke up and get tears thinking about what people can do. And so you kind of uh, named... And this is how the the book is structured around eight wonders of life. Um, and I I mean I'm assuming I hear that as in like interior analogs to what we call wonders of the world. Is that right? Like I think we need new wonders of the world. Right. You, know, you, you I mean, look at they, those, and those are all power based. Yeah, yeah, those are monuments, nonsense, right? And you know. yeah. Well, well, yeah. Go on, go on. Well, you know, this is saying you know mm-hmm. that's like a hierarchical conceptualization of wonder, yeah. like. What did the guy in charge in the Egyptian period <laughs> do? Right. Make thousands of people do. Yeah, at or the cost Trump of Tower or yeah. whatever. But, yeah. You know, but yeah, you know, and that was this big surprise in this research ta- is how ordinary awe can mm-hmm. be. It's everywhere, right? So it's the flowers blooming and, you know, the moral beauty of people and some pattern of light on the sidewalk. So, yeah, we called them eight wonders of everyday life. Yeah. So what I what I would like to do is yeah. obviously we can't walk through it all, but I, I just kind of went through myself and pulled out some threads that That's intrigue good. and illuminate and, you know, turns of phrase that for me uh-huh. put something into a new light. So I just like to walk through it that way. And, yeah, and first of all, there is this, what you call the first wonder of life, moral beauty. Yeah. And there's also, there's this, um, in terms of this moral beauty of, of awe at the kindness and strength and courage and overcoming of others, you use this phrase, allowing goodness its own speech. Hmm. So what is that? What does that mean to you? Or how did that come out of the research? Well, you know, it comes, allowing goodness its own speech comes out of a, a graduation speech by Toni Morrison, the great writer, who said, you know, this is what she sees to be the purpose of her creative life and literature and the like. And Krista, I mean, obviously we live in these times where, you know, you, you arrive at a really cynical view of human beings. Yeah. And that cynical view, I might add, has prevailed in a lot of the social sciences and it's been refuted that people actually share instinctively, we cooperate, we we have neurophysiological systems that help us care for a lot of people. It's, as Darwin said, you know, 
sympathy is our strongest instinct. Yeah. And what what struck me about the ease with which people around the world would would like, hey, what's awe inspiring? They didn't mention a god or the Grand Canyon. They mentioned ordinary people doing amazing things. And so I felt like that scientific act was allowing goodness its own speech. Like, Mm -hmm. man, this just surfaces in how people think about the transcendent. And I hope, you know, I I just, I think we need more of that. You know, we need more um, stories around goodness and uh, this human capacity. So for me, um, you know, like I said, I, I can get really uh, tense and anxious. I can be a little misanthropic. I hate to say it. <laughs> you know, yeah. I wasn't the, the kindest little kid. Uh, and this science was like, wow, there is a lot of goodness mm. out there mm. that we need to allow its its articulation. Mm. The, so the second one is collective effervescence and what wonderful language for what you're describing is again so ordinary and built into all kind of life oh my god yeah collective effervescence Emile Durkheim the great French sociologist just moving together feeling exultant bubbling being ecstatic is just this deep tendency young people feel it all the time you know, they dance and they they go to political rallies and sporting events and right. world, you know. But it's everywhere. You know, once I started to think about this, I I love walking in Berkeley. And Berkeley is this buzzing, high-energy place. And you would see these patterns of collective effervescence that that the science is starting to capture, you know. People walking to work, little kids going to a dance class, you know, people at a picnic people lining up to get onto a bus. We just have this this tendency to start to move together. Right. And it brings us a lot of sense of unity and a sense of awe. And and if you really push it in the right context, bliss. (laughs) And a sense of like, wow, look at what I'm part of. You know, I'm part of this this collective. Um, What a striking tendency we have. And I, as I started to dig into this concept, I love Soren Kierkegaard's quote, you know, this grouchy philosopher writing about dread. He, he'd go out and walk and he would say, it puts me into contact with the significance of insignificant things. You know, mm. and that's how I felt mm. like, mm. man, watching kids line up to go play is awesome or marching to their preschool in their incredible ways. Well, yeah, and you have this phrase also, moving, that somehow what becomes collective effervescence has to do with moving the way our bodies were meant to move, which is so interesting to think about. But everything you're talking about, though, we do so unconscious of the fact that this is primal and life-giving, right, which is what you're saying, what the science is saying. Yeah, you know, I, I mean, almost all cultures have deep histories and traditions of dance, you know. Yeah. I was just in the Himalayas in Bhutan for this project, and uh, the Layap people dance all the time. You know, they, they have a government ceremony, and then they dance, mm-hmm. you know. And that is very, that's very human to move in unison like that. And mm-hmm. it's, as you said, Krista, it's life-giving and... You know, I hate juxtaposing with our screen-based, chair-based life, yeah. but we've lost that. Mm-hmm. And 
But I see young people moving back to it of board games and dance clubs. And uh, so I, I have hope we can return to it. Also use this. You say awe is an emotion of the superorganism, and I've heard you talk about this in a few contexts. And I want you to talk about the superorganism because I guess is collective effervescence also an expression of this when this happens when we're together in these gatherings, having these experiences. Yeah, and this is where the science is really cool, which is that you know you can get people and they start moving in unison like you know in experiments you have them walk in unison or move their do some gestures in unison and they're like okay this is kind of artificial it doesn't have the power of dance or a political rally but then their their brains start showing similar patterns of activation throughout the 80 billion neurons that are their brains and their physiologies their cortisol and their their hormones start linking up and the next thing you know it's like well, we're kind of this a shared mental state, and and you and can measure that right with your science now. Yeah, definitely. You can you measure know, you, that we literally physiologically sync up in all kinds of oh yeah minute ways. Yeah, I mean, you know, one study had people listen to music together, and their brains started to synchronize. People in the the music venue in a similar pattern of activation, so they're literally their their neurophysiological mental state is similar. We did a study of really poor kids and veterans rafting, and we measured the hormone cortisol, which is a stress hormone. At the start of the day, their hormone levels were all different. They're separate individuals. Yeah. By the end of the day, <laughs> after having rafted with a little collection of people, their hormone levels are the same. Mm-hmm. Lots of data on that. And, and that's striking that these processes of collective effervescence, you're doing rituals in a church, right? You're chanting mm-hmm. at a game. Mm-hmm. You are greeting people in a ceremony. They sync us up physiologically, which enables lots of good things. Yeah. Oh, gosh, it's so fascinating. Yeah. And then, of course, nature, which yeah. is maybe what I would have expected to yep. be the first from 2,600 <laughs> narratives. I might have thought there, that the most stories would be about awe at the natural world. And of course it's in here and it's important. And some of the things you're describing happen outside. Um, but I want to hear more about the neurophysiology, what you call the neurophysiology of wild awe. <laughs> Which yeah. I guess is, is that awe that happens outdoors <laughs> in the wild. Yeah, it is a universal. Um, it It might be mushrooms in Russia or the desert landscape in part of the you know, the Middle East or um, the ocean for surfers. Mm. But all, nature is directly evocative of awe, but not as much as other people, which surprised us. And the neurophysiology is amazing. It is truly amazing. And it gets back to this old indigenous idea of we are part of an ecosystem. Our bodies are part of them. So, right. you know, there's a review of how nature benefits us And there are 21 pathways by which that's true, including awe. But what really struck me is the neurophysiology, which is, you know, 
sound waves coming off of streams and moving bodies of water activate the vagus nerve. They calm us down. There are chemical compounds in nature. You might smell on a flower or tree bark or the resin on a tree that activate parts of the brain and the immune system, right? Mm -hmm. So our bodies are wired to respond in an open, empowering, strengthening way to nature. That work's largely done in Japan and South Korea. Interesting. And I think, you know, one of the broader lessons that awe provides for us is, you know, these ideas of separate self, like, oh, I'm different from other people, which is true, but we're also synced up with other people. I'm different from nature. That's true. But we're also part of an ecosystem. And I'm always persuaded by certain kinds of physiological data, which say, like, man, you've got cells in your skin that are tracking uh, chemicals in, in nature that benefit you. Yeah. So it's striking to me the uses and meaning of that science. And and you mentioned the vagus nerve, which is our favorite nerve here at On Being. <laughs> <laughs> and I, so, I know that makes me tear up, I have I to think say. It, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it's one of maybe your favorite, favorite nerve, oh, too. Oh, my God. So I have a question for you. Yeah. Um, so you call it, interestingly, the caretaking nerve. Obviously, I think the it translates the wandering nerve. Um, I don't yeah. know if you know Resma Menicum, who's worked with racialized trauma in the mm. body. He calls it the soul nerve. Mm. And is this also so? So I feel like the vagus nerve is this great frontier that's yeah. helping explain a lot. And yeah. yet, is this also new science? Like, was I feel like it's everywhere now? But was the vagus nerve not seen before, or was it just not taken seriously? What a terrific question, Krista. And and I love the phrase soul nerve. I'll uh -huh. use that going forward. Okay. I, think we should, I think we should use the word soul more often. Uh -huh. I know you do, but but uh, we narrow-minded scientists should too. You know, um, yeah, it, it's so striking to reflect on how cultural biases shape science and then our claims about human nature. You know, for 60, 70 years, we've been studying fight-or-flight physiology, Oh, we're wired to fight or flee in life, you know. And that was that was a, a sense of what physiology was, was, you know, it's really about self-preservation. And we made progress in understanding cortisol and the amygdala, the threat-related region of the brain, and blood it was, pressure. It was this view of human nature that really penetrated the Western society, right? So, totally. Yeah. It, so as you're saying, so we applied that lens to our bodies. We did. And, and with profound myopias, and one of them being, well, your body has the vagus nerve. And, you know, we call it the autonomic nervous system. There are all these bundles of nerves coming out of your spinal cord that affect blood flow and digestion and muscle contractions and glucose and so forth. And the vagus nerve is part of that system. It's, it's a mammalian bundle of nerves it stretches from the top of your spinal cord. It wanders through your heart and lungs and digestive organs. And remarkably, Krista, gets into your gut yeah. and receives all this information from the microbiome. It is the mind-body nexus, and we just hadn't studied it. And it was really Steve Porges who, you know, was this, this scholar in the 80s who was saying, hey, we've got this love organ in the body. And people are like, oh, I know <laughs> what that organ. is. Yeah, wow. I know. There well, I'm probably misquoting one. here. My apologies. <laughs> yeah. But, but, or this caretaking nerves. He called it social engagement. Uh -huh. uh, and, and then, you know, our lab started to get into the act that when you feel compassion, uh, 
the vagus nerve is activated because it slows your heart rate. It, it opens you up to other people. It allows you to vocalize. It allows you to look at people in the eyes. When we meditate, the vagus nerve is activated. Not the kind of meditation I got thrown out for, but, right, you right. know. Yeah. Um, and then awe, you know, awe activates the vagus nerve because it orients you to be open to the world and to other people. And I, you know, to me, what that says is this, this capacity for wonder and beauty and sympathy and kindness. When I used to teach it without the neurophysiology, skeptics would be like, oh, there's the Berkeley guy who's sitting in a hot tub <laughs> having had a bong hit. And, you know, right. and here he goes again. No, this is in our genes. It's, uh -huh. in, our, it's in our neurophysiology. Very robustly so. It's something that's fascinated me ever since I started visualizing this vagus nerve. Is yeah. I, I also realize as much as, as you say, it's true that culturally we just didn't, we didn't see this because we weren't looking for these capacities in ourselves. Yeah. Um, and yet there are ways in which in words we use and phrases mm. we use it's like we had this knowledge and it was and but we and we yeah. carried it around and now we're learning what it means so one thing that's occurred to me really is if you think about right the vagus nerve as you said like goes to your amygdala your throat your heart your gut and what are we when we use this phrase i feel nervous mm. right what what are we describing? You feel a little yeah. bit afraid your throat closes up your heart is pounding your stomach is churning right so all of that, somehow we've been this. But I feel like what your science is doing is helping us activate it, again, towards what is life-giving, towards nurturing these capacities in ourselves. Yeah, there's no doubt, you know, cultures have really rich conceptual systems that, that track the body, you know, and the, these bodily reverberations, to use William James's language, and, you know, chakra systems, right? Mm -hmm. There's this heart chakra, and that's the vagus nerve. And right, when you right. go to, you see images of, of you know, uh, Buddhism and, and transcendent states, and it has all this vibration around the head or heart. So clearly, we knew this. But what the science gives us is it says, hey, here is the system. Oh, by the way, it helps your immune system and your <laughs> digestion. Right. And your heart rate and your cardiovascular profile. And guess what? Medical doctors will listen, right? Mm -hmm. and, and they will prescribe nature or a new yoga class or a meditation practice increasingly or gratitude exercise or, or listening to your show, you know, mm -hmm. as a way to activate these regions of the, the body because they're good for you. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I always have had an eye on utility um, you know, my mom was a social activist or is, and it's like, well, knowledge needs to, especially now, help people, you know, and, mm -hmm. and the vagus nerve has had that effect, the science of it. Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute. Fetzer supports a movement of organizations that are applying spiritual solutions to society's toughest problems. Learn more at Fetzer.org.
of course, spiritual and religious awe mm. is, of course, in here. It's part of it. And I don't know. It's number six in the <laughs> it's number six in the list. But rank but, number six right, rank is number religion. Six. But but you know, but kind of like it seems to me like music as well as this one, spiritual and religious awe. They also show up in all these other places, right? Yeah, they yeah. show up in moral beauty and in collective effervescence and. Um, so, but I, I think another thing you've said about awe here is that awe also gives you, gives us, gives science and, and gives us collectively a new way in to talk about meaning and yeah. a compass for what matters. Yeah. Um, wow. A compass for what matters. I just had a little goosebump reaction there. So, <laughs> you know, it's been so interesting, Krista, you know, forgive me for saying this and you. Your show has gotten people to think about spirit and soul uh, and uh, sacred, all these concepts that are very intuitive that the world has used for so long uh, that were right at the front and center. I love Walt Whitman, you know, saying, uh, if the soul is not in the body, where is the soul? Mm -hmm. And I think he was talking about the vagus nerve and oxytocin. <laughs> no, seriously. Yeah. You know, yeah. but um, – I live in a world of science where we really, really did not study spirit or soul or religion. We really get awkward talking about it. We, we avoid it. And yet it is a deep human universal. And what I love about awe, and when I teach awe to different groups, like I teach a lot of medical doctors who are watching people die. And they want to talk about spirit. Mm -hmm. um, and they are very interested, in, and the whole context of that moment is awe and wonder and mystery. And what's been striking to me in studying awe and then teaching awe or having conversations around awe with judges and doctors and, you know, academicians and school teachers is it gets them to spirit and the sacred. And they say, wow, you know, I, you know, I felt awe backpacking with my daughter, and that's really what is spirituality for me. Mm -hmm. And that's actually true of 41% of Americans, you know, that they find God or divine in nature, like Ralph Aldo Emerson did. And awe allows us to have that conversation. And then somebody who says, well, that's interesting. I find it in, you know, going to church. And it has this feeling state, this quality that you can start having a, a more pluralistic conversation around like William James was interested in. And I, you know, Krista, I'm not a religious person. One of the other great family stories is we went to a largely Jewish school when I was growing up in Laurel Canyon, or a lot of Jews were in the school, and, and they, uh, when Hanukkah arrived, they all got to go home. And my brother was like, asked his first grade teacher, like, why are all these kids gone? Uh, and the teacher said, well, you, you know, they have a certain religious faith and you believe in Jesus. And my brother went home like, hey, mom, who's this Jesus guy? <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's the kind of story we expect to hear from Berkeley, right? Yeah, Growing I up where I grew up, <laughs> in the middle of the country. But, but anyway, I'm rambling. But, you know, it, it allows us to have a conversation about spirit yeah. is, is all. You know, I, I think also a place it, this takes my mind is to... Just like we were saying that there's intelligence embedded in our language and cultures um, yeah. that science catches up with. Yeah. You know, if you think about the intelligence of religious traditions and practices at their yeah. best, right? 
so many of the things that you've named, these wonders of life, they yeah. are all embedded, right? Dance and chant and visual design, sacred geometry, liturgy, service to others, right? Yeah. All of yep. these things that it's now possible to study, uh, yeah. make us more complete, more whole, to lead towards flourishing, have been kind of innovated in these spaces. Well, taken seriously in these spaces, maybe. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. and and you know that's one view as a social scientific view of religious practice is it brings together all of these deeply human tendencies mm-hmm. of awe, right? Mm-hmm. Of rituals and reverence and forms of deference and visual iconography. Right. Well, yeah. Yeah. Gratitude. And, and, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Praise. And, yeah. and music and singing. Mm-hmm. And, and by the mm-hmm. way, you know, as a non-religious person, one of the things that science taught me is go find that, you know, Mm -hmm. and you'll piece it together in interesting ways. And I think that's, it's what we're doing anyway. It's so intelligent in our culture. And and for those people like me who are a little bit more data-driven, this science points us in that direction. Yeah. And I also want to talk about a very tender part of the story you tell and part of your life experience that does come into your writing about this, um, which is the the illness and death of your brother, mm. Rolf. Um, and, you know, I wonder, so experiences of life and death are also part of this array of where human beings experience awe. And it seems like you, you had that experience very directly. Mm. I wonder if you would Talk to me about, you know, what that experience in the middle of being somebody studying this thing. Yeah. I I have the feeling when I read what you write about it that it actually, that you learned things that you hadn't known before, that it took you that much deeper mm. in some way. Yeah. You know, um, I, uh, you know, I was doing this awe science for 10 years, um, you know, I'm very proud of it. I think uh, it, it's been generating a lot of interesting conversations. And then, you know, my younger brother, Rolf, got sick with colon cancer and passed away. And Rolf and I, as we've spoken, all those wild times I had in Laurel Canyon and beyond and the, the kind of the experiment that was my family, a wonderful experiment, were side by side with my brother Rolf. He was only 14 months younger than me. We did everything together from playing Little League to wandering foothills to wild trips, dancing, et cetera, best men at each other's weddings. And he, you know, there's, I mean, there's nothing like a great sibling relationship. He and I made sense of our lives together and, looked at the world together and and found awe together. And then, you know, when I was watching him, you know, colon cancer is horrible and it's horror. And watching him die knocked me into an aweless state where, Mm -hmm. like some Americans feel, where I was like trying to make sense of death and watching a, a really strong human being's body just get wiped out and deteriorate. Uh, and that was my brother's body that looked like my body. And, you know, and it, it, I've never felt like I did. And it was like Joan Didion, you know, like this mm-hmm. madness of grief uh, of, you know, just hallucinating. And I was barely sleeping. And, 
And then I also had the mystery that a lot of people have in our research, as we've found, of like the night he passed, I was full of wonder. I was like, what is life? You know, why do people we love vanish? Do they vanish? Because mm-hmm. he sure felt like he was around me, and he still does. And to your point or question, Krista, I, I was uh, aweless and probably clearly anxious and depressed after the grief, like a lot of people, or in the grief as uh, after the loss, as a lot of people are. And and I I used the science. I was like, man, I got to go find awe. You know, yeah, you wrote that I went in search of awe, which yeah. is kind of a stunning statement because you were already in search of awe. But it feels like you, I don't know. It, it, did you kind of make it a practice? I did. In a way that you hadn't before. I, I really did, you know. I mean, one of the things, and I've done a little bit of work on grief, and anyone will intuit this, that when you lose people, they have you have this certain relationality with them, and you lose that, you know. And my brother and I were awe-seekers together. Mm. And we went backpacking and, you know, to Mexico and to concerts, and, and there it went. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I was like, man, I don't know how to find the awe I need. And I made it a practice. I went to, and it's interesting for people to think about this. Like, you know, I did more awe walks ordinarily. I went to mountains. Yeah, say what I, the awe walks are. That's something you've. Yeah, you, it's a, it's a thing. It's a thing. <laughs> so I, you know, for me, the awe practice in in the grief was I awe walks are simply we've tested this scientifically. Like, go out and do a walk and look for things that amaze you and. Big and small, and and it and you can do that. I you know I gathered up a lot of sacred texts to mm. stay close to. I went to awe spots. I just I I don't know much about music, but I really intentionally went into music to like find what is awe inspiring about it. Mm. So I made it a practice in life, like a lot of people do. You mm-hmm. know, like you've said, like religion or spirituality, um, and it changed my life. You know, I, I have to say to you that I had a bit of an epiphany here, which is number eight. <laughs> <laughs> number eight. Eighth wonder of life. Yeah. Here's the epiphany that I had, kind of in the middle of getting ready to talk to you and immersing in what you've written and what you know. I, I don't know. I think this is a very hard time in the life of the world, right? Like, I agree. I, I am aware in myself, I'm also aware in a lot of other people, you know, I, I got to go in and out of feeling okay and not, and, and it, we're, we're really not okay, right? Like we're not no, okay we not <laughs> and the okay. world is not okay. And I don't think we've even begun to process all the things we've been through and everything that we are called to. So anyway, so, but I started to realize that the way I have trained myself and I feel like there's a lot of available training and teaching right now culturally and you're you're in this too about like how to calm yourself right yeah so like i know about breathing and i have my little (laughs) my little embarrassingly little meditation practice you know i pray i but i listen to music like and i actually know some of the science right i mean i think about what it's doing in my body but i realized when i was reading you that all of that is kind of it's remedial right it's like just getting and I think, you know, we also know, I've been reading, hearing about there's there's um, research about when 
when people do meditation in a remedial way, which is how a lot of us do it, like yeah. just hanging on for dear life, how can I calm down? That you don't keep it up as a practice. But I realize, so I realize, like so much of how I'm, how I think I've learned to get grounded when things are hard is all about like settling inside, getting calm, and looking in. But what you're talking about with going in search of awe and making awe a practice is another move. It's a complementary move, right? Like it's not just looking in. It's like looking up and out and getting activated in a grounding worry. Like yeah. grounding towards flourishing and not just holding it together. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're on to a, a very important critique of the well-being literature you know, the science and the practice. And and I felt this recently teaching it, what, the mistakes I've been making, and you've put your finger on it, Krista, which is, it is like, oh, reduce your individual stress. This is how we do it. Right, Stress right. reduction. Stress reduction, yeah. Right, and that's remedial, and we need more, right? And, and the science of well-being has suddenly surfaced this idea of meaning, mm-hmm. that what we really, and you've been talking about this for a long time, we have a crisis of meaning, mm-hmm. you know? And what are the big things that I need to care about and relate to and orient my life toward? And awe does that work for you, right? Awe is about fundamentally what is the individual's relation to the the big systems of life um, that we care about, that move us culturally and individually. Um, You know, for some people it's music. For other people it's a conception of the divine. For other people it's ecosystems. And that's what awe gives you. And what I'm hopeful about, you know, introducing it at this time is, is, you know, we have been in this big narrowing of consciousness. Yeah. Like smartphones and little apps and, yeah. you know, it's narrow by its physicality. And isn't we, it weird? Because, like, in the one hand, it's a revolution of consciousness, but it's also been incredibly narrowing, diminishing at the same time. Yeah, and I don't mm-hmm. even know if it's been a revolution. I think yeah. it's been or this, think like, we thought of it that way. Yeah, I yeah. just think it's this, oh, I'm going to narrow into very constrained searches on mm-hmm. a little device. Um, you know, it's worth noting that no one mentions their smartphone around the world when they think of awe. I hate to say it. <laughs> <laughs> right. Or a Google search. So, <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, awe tells us, like, go out and expand your view of things. Mm-hmm. And I do think it gives us meaning. You know, um, the young people I teach are very good at algorithms and computations, and they they need the broader view. So, and I, and and that's what it gave me during this hard time in my life was like, wow, you know, what I really care. I have this new sense of the human form and spirit that maybe my brother is always with me in ways I can't imagine. Um, and it going in search of all gave me that. You've also said, and I don't want to talk about psychedelics because psychedelics get talked about so yeah, much now. Girl. But like, oh that, you've said, like, uh, maybe not as this big, concentrated 
experience, high experience, but that you said essentially awe does, experiences of awe do the same thing in your brain that psychedelics do. And I mean, you know, here's this very conclusive statement from you as a scientist. There is almost nothing better to do for the state of your mind and body than go get some awe. Would you talk a little bit about the default mode network because I guess what what I'm also what I also what you've helped me understand is all these kinds of experiences we've talked about like they are amazing in and of themselves in terms of what they do to us and for us but then they also become they open us right to that mm. to a conversation with ourselves or a reflection mm. in the world about meaning about mm. something larger than ourselves and you talked about this default mode network that uh, quiet certain impulses in us and that they free our minds up to connect in a bigger way. Yeah, you know, the default mode network is this a lot of large structures in your cortex, um, the medial prefrontal cortex and the posterior cingulate cortex on the side. I mean, this is hundreds of millions or billions of neurons, so <laughs> we're going to wow. be more precise as the science evolves. But it, it tends to correlate with, in its activation, self-focused activities, right? Like, oh, I'm thinking about me mm-hmm. and my traits and my past and my memories and my goals. And quite strikingly, um, one of the big findings in the psychedelics literature is psychedelics, you know, lead to the deactivation of the, de- the default mode network. So does meditation. And... So does awe in studies in Japan and Holland and the U.S. And, you know, I, as I get older, Krista, you'll probably like this, like I get less (laughs) biologically reductionistic, like, so what? You know, so this brain region deactivates. What's that tell you about meaning? Not much, you know. But what it does tell us is, wow, people use language like ego death, psychedelics, small self, awe. I lost a sense of self-awareness in collective effervescence. And, and that's true neurophysiologically, too. Uh, to me, what, what these neurophysiological findings highlight is, yes, yeah, psychedelics are, are one of many pathways, and our fervor about them needs, we can't lose sight of the fact that you can have that experience uh, gardening, you can have that experience listening to your favorite piece of music uh, that a lot of the world is, quote, psychedelic, just imbued right, with right. meaning. Yeah. And, and one of the mm-hmm. – what I'm excited about is kind of the next frontier of that neuroscience, which is, okay, the self regions of the brain calm down. What – how do we make sense of this feeling you have with awe that you're – your boundaries are dissolving and you're part of everything. And, and to use your language, which I really almost used in this, you know, in thinking about the purpose of Oz to recognize what's life giving, mm-hmm. you know, because that is a common thread across the wonders of life of all. And, and that will be really interesting new neuroscience that's on the horizon. Yeah, and as we've spoken all the way through, it's so clear that this also has so much relevance, n- not just to our individual state of being, hmm. and does have huge relevance to that, but also to, you know, our life together, our collective state of being and possibility. Yeah. Um, you wrote some really interesting things 
2020 about you know being in pandemic and hmm. you named and I think this is important to name it's like what's the difference between what we call a mystery and what we call a nightmare right I mean what hmm. you know that awe and fear and awe and horror these things are they they live somehow close to each other in us but you quoted um the wonderful environmentalist Terry Tempest while I'm saying mm. the difference between fear and awe is a matter of our eyes adjusting. Mm. But I guess just, yeah, talk a little bit about how you see the what this science and this practice of awe might have to offer this very complicated world we're, we're living in right now. Yeah, I would hope that we think about a couple of extensions of this science of awe. One are the social crises of our time that our Surgeon General, Dr. Vivek Murthy, has named as the crisis of emotional well-being or meaning, shared meaning. We are, you know, individualism, the idea I'm separate and different from others and have no connections has really risen dramatically. Uh, and then you add to that the structural factors that gave, have given rise to loneliness. Mm-hmm. And wanting more social contact and not being able to find it. And, and that is, as uh, Vivek has said, a crisis of our times, a health crisis. And awe and where we find it and how it changes our minds where when we feel awe in the moment, we suddenly feel like we're part of a, an integrated community. We do things that are good for the community. Mm-hmm. We build things like public art spaces or gardens or game nights that bring us together it is a compass, uh, as to use your language, of meaning. Like, oh, I got to get back together with other people. So I think awe is really a direct pathway to addressing these social crises of our time. And then, you know, the environmental crises, it's, it's really clear from a lot of different kinds of data, from large-scale naturalistic data, going to big public art events, finding out individually that it makes you better behaved in terms of the environment. You eat less red meat, you walk more, you you drive less. And, <laughs> so amazing. Yeah, yeah, you know, and and I think, you know, you could come up with an interesting explanation like mm-hmm. it activates this old evolved sense that I'm part of an ecosystem. I should care for the air and the the other beings around me. Mm. And maybe awe as long as it stays you know, fresh, um, will move us in a different direction to deal with these crises of loneliness, which is huge, and it's killing people, Not, and I'm not exaggerating, and then the sense of how I uh, relate to nature and the resources that are part of nature. Mm-hmm. And th- there are 360 million Americans who go to our national parks. It is the big experiment in awe and mm. awe practice mm. in the United States. Mm. Um, and and we get a lot of benefits from that, and it gives us a sense of common purpose. So I hope our conversation stirs other kinds of movements like that. You know, I don't want to finish before noting that you've mentioned goosebumps a few times. I know. I can't remember if you mentioned tears, but chills. Yeah. But for you, these are metrics, right? So yeah. another... Fabulous phrase that I don't want to end without putting out here is the emotional body. So we started out with coding facial expressions, <laughs> and now I think you're interested in the emotional body and the scholarship of tears. So would you talk about what all of those things mean and and how important they are in ways? Oh my God! I, you know, 
I love the, the I love the body. <laughs> 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 no, but you know, you know, I would start with uh, both William James, and of course, this is much older. You know, and Walt Whitman. If the soul is not in the body, where is the soul? That's a radical statement, right? Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. that James also pursued that the transcendent and the sacred and the spiritual are in our bodies. Uh, not a very popular idea in a lot of Western European traditions. Um, and as an emotion scientist, you see a statement like that. If the soul is not in the body, where's the soul? Okay, the soul's in the body. My sense of deep meaning is is in the body. Then you you start asking people, as we've done, and they say, oh, yeah, I get the goosebumps. Um, <laughs> right, right, and, well, right. what are the goosebumps? Well, there are two different kinds. One is the shudder, <laughs> you know, of horror. Uh-huh. The other is the tingly sensation. Uh, I've had it a couple times today, Krista, mm. of, you know, rushing up your back like, wow, I get these little movements, these flashes of, of bodily sensation up, up into my scalp, yeah. which young people call ASMR today. Well, those are little muscles contracting around hair follicles that mammals, social mammals, pilo-erected or they fluffed up their fur to get close to each other to get warm during the cold. Mm. And so that analysis of the goosebumps and that specific kind tends to correlate with awe tells us awe in mammalian evolution is about getting close to others to face shared threats. Mm. And Franz Duvall, the great primatologist, said, oh, you've got to read Jane Goodall because she... She noted that, you know, the great apes show this early awe of absorption and goosebumps and the like looking at waterfalls. And she said that's early awe and spirituality. So the body tells us not only, you know, wow, our metaphors and, and, and the like are grounded in physiology, which is interesting, but we share this with mammals, you know, which to mm-hmm. me is always, it's back to my love of dinosaurs who weren't mammals, but, <laughs> right. you know. And then the tears, you know, Alan Fisk has done wonderful work showing we tear up, which again is uh, part of this certain pro-social physiology of vagus nerve activation and the like. We get these tears, particular kinds of tears, when we see people forming community, Right. Mm-hmm. And that's amazing to me. You know, mm-hmm. you you see two Olympic athletes from different countries embrace and you cheer up. Right, right. Or you see so people right. of different... You're not even sure why. Yeah. yeah, you know. Yeah. In the restorative justice work I did in prisons, man, you know, I would see white supremacist prisoners embrace a person of color and I would just be crying, mm-hmm. you know. and And that's the bodily response that says... I am observing people becoming part of a community, which is our, our, one of our defining evolutionary mm. accomplishments. So the body, to me, is just another language to say, hey, this isn't just pie in the sky, you know, rhetoric that you'd hear on with Krista Tippett. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or fine, you know, it's, it's part of our body. Oh, yeah, I, I'm going to admit it. I got a little pricky, little tear pricky during that last <laughs> answer. So, success, you succeeded. Ah. Um, I I know we have to finish. Let me just say, um, yeah, and I feel like also I've watched some of your talks with your students at Berkeley and 
it's just clear to me that even bringing like the, we crave this right as you've been we do. all along we crave this as creatures and we know we want mystery and we know it's real and we know our imaginations are longing to engage I feel like you really embody this effervescence as much as you teach Aww. about it I'm so glad you're you're here and doing this and thank you so much thank you thanks for saying that Dacher Keltner's new book is Awe, the New Science of Everyday Wonder and How It Can Transform Your Life. He's a professor of psychology at the University of California, Berkeley, and founding director of the Greater Good Science Center, and he hosts the Science of Happiness podcast. The On Being Project is Chris Hegel, Lauren Drummerhausen, Eddie Gonzalez, Lillian Vo, Lucas Johnson, Suzette Burley, Zach Rose, Colleen Sheck, Julie Seipel, Gretchen Honnold, Padre Gotuma, Gautam Shrikishan, April Adamson, Ashley Herr, Amy Chatelaine, Romy Neme, Cameron Musar, Kayla Edwards, Juliana Lewis, and Tiffany Champion. On Being is an independent, nonprofit production of the On Being Project. We are located on Dakota land. Our lovely theme music is provided and composed by Zoe Keating. Our closing music was composed by Gautam Shrikishan. And the last voice you hear singing at the end of our show is Cameron Kinghorn. Our funding partners include the Hearthland Foundation, helping to build a more just, equitable, and connected America, one creative act at a time. The Fetzer Institute, supporting a movement of organizations applying spiritual solutions to society's toughest problems. Find them at Fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation, dedicated to reconnecting ecology, culture, and spirituality, supporting organizations and initiatives that uphold a sacred relationship with life on Earth. Learn more at Calliopeia.org. The Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives. And the Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private family foundation dedicated to its founders' interests in religion, community development, and education. On Being is produced by On Being Studios in Minneapolis, Minnesota.